2: we
3: Howdy, hey and hello there welcome to another episode of weird finance where we try to help you feel a little less weird about money one conversation at a time i'm your host paco de Leon, and on this week's episode i'm chatting with shruti joshi recently i found myself immersed in the lives of two very different groups of friends at contrasting stages in their lives one a couple of newlyweds trying to keep up pace with their growing business They're earning a lot, but spending quite a bit along the way. The other, a group of parents choosing to work less, which means earning and spending less too. What they value the most in this moment in time is being able to spend quality time with their kids before they go to school and inevitably grow up way too fast. While being immersed in such differing experiences, I was able to see the contrast vividly. Despite the different places my friends are in their lives, They're all making financial decisions that reflect their current identities, express their current values, and influence the way they want to live their lives. In this week's conversation, I chat with Shruti Joshi, the COO of the financial planning firm Facet Wealth. We discuss how money can be a tool to express our value system, how in the past our financial situation largely constrained our identity, and how in today's world, every decision is a financial decision. Please enjoy my conversation with Shruti. Shruti, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So you are a COO at a company called Facet Wealth. Before we jump into all of the wonderful things that Facet is doing, I really want to get to know you. I want to learn a little bit about your upbringing and how that's played into your decision to be in the space of finance.
2: Sure. Well, would it help if I start a little bit with where I am and who I am and my personal setup? Absolutely. Okay, great. So I'm Shruti. I live in New York City. I'm a proud New Yorker. Um, I'm married. I do have a four and a half year old son. I'm one of those people that will do anything for a story love to travel. It's why I'm here on this planet. Extremely passionate about music. I just love the go, go, go and the hustle in life, actually. And I'm not a workaholic, although some people might disagree. But I really think I just love to engage in things that I'm really passionate about. And I get so consumed. And I think financial wellness is, you know, one really great example of that. So that's a little bit about me.
3: Can we go back further? Like, where did you grow up? And
2: Were you always in finance? Did you study finance? You know what? I didn't. I studied business. But it's an interesting story because if I think about, you know, my background and upbringing and how that might have influenced my finances, there are really three things that I think played a big role in how I ended up here. For starters, I'm the daughter of immigrants, so my parents had such a big impact, like most of us, on my, you know, values and my initial values around money and my psychology and the way that I actually approach it. And so just to tell you a little bit about my parents, you know, they came to this country from India. So my ancestry is Indian by way of Belgium. And they came here with $800 um, in the early eighties, they had no safety net. And so saving for a rainy day was key to them. And they really believed in saving for emergencies and the future and any major goals that they had, and then enjoying money for what was left over. So they had this very savings-oriented, structured way. They were very pragmatic about money, and they taught us, my sister and I, the value of a dollar, mm. You know, which meant that things that were less important weren't always funded. So, for example, back in the 80s, I don't know... For those of you that are um 80s kids or 90s kids, Debbie Gibson was like she was the bomb, right? And I really wanted a Debbie Gibson hat. And I really <laughs> wanted to wear like esprit sweatshirts, but that was not that was not an easy, an easy ask or an easy win in my family. My parents really wanted us to understand the value of money. And so it wasn't like we got everything we wanted. And you know, they were also had to be very careful about the choices that they made, not having a safety net. And I think, you know, the other thing that comes to mind in this sort of first immigrant influence in my life and money is that I got to actually go to India as a child. And I will never forget being four and a half years old in India, right, sitting in Mumbai and staring at somebody my age, begging me for money and for food. That will change your perception on a lot of things including that realization of how important money is in our lives in terms of our quality of life and how different life is for all of us around this you know as many as much as we have so many similarities in the human experience there are so many differences in how we experience this planet and so i really learned gratefulness early so that immigrant mentality was one huge theme you know in terms of my upbringing and how it influences this
3: yeah, I am violently nodding my head, yes, here, for a lot of reasons. I feel like it hasn't always felt like a superpower to have a built-in perspective where your parents are not from this country, so they just they're doing their best to navigate American culture with their you know kids who are growing up in it. And yeah, yeah now the older I'm getting, and the more I do this work, where I'm talking about money on the internet, the more i realize that it is really powerful to have these different this different perspective growing up here's a funny thing today you're the second person who i spoke to about going on a trip to india which i think is yeah. interesting and interesting. yeah and i am myself at the end of this year i'm going back to the motherland i'm going to the philippines and i haven't been since wow. i was 18 months old and i am already kind of mentally preparing for that confrontation and for that feeling of like you know, uh, as an immigrant and as an American, somebody who's left-leaning, it it is fun to make fun of how terrible America is and all the ways that it can be better. But I feel very, very privileged and lucky to be here, to be, again, do, making a living, helping people, and doing it in this kind of unusual way, right? Broadcasting yeah. sounds on the internet, putting squiggly lines in an email and blasting it out into the ether. And just, you know, it's a, it's a wild ride we're all experiencing.
2: That is so true. No, definitely. I think that it, it is a wild ride and there is so much pride in being an American and what this country can provide. Um, and I think being the daughter of immigrants, like I've had that front row seat to it. And so it's it means something different for sure. And it's nice to be able to exchange those stories with others And it's interesting because like the second really big influential sort of childhood reality or my upbringing is that my parents were YOLO long (laughs) before YOLO was a thing. And as much as they didn't, you know, agree on materialistic purchases, at least with ease, we had to really fight for those. They definitely believed in spending money on things that were enriching in our lives. And so things like education or development, you know, we grew up playing tennis and learning, you know, new crafts or tools, they were very generous and supportive. In fact, they sacrificed to give us those type of experiences. And so, you know, we traveled a lot. I remember the, you know, the limited budget we did have, especially when they first came here, they used it to let us see the world and they felt that that would be enriching. That was their value system. And they kept going. They also had this spirit of if they got a better opportunity in their careers, they would take it. And so I actually moved seven times before I was 14. Wow. And interestingly, yeah, they're the American dream in a way, right? (laughs) Interestingly, their neighborhoods kept getting better and better. And so when they came to the U.S., they were literally scraping change to buy a television set. And now they live, you know, in one of the nicest coastal communities in Southern California. And they lived in everything in between, even internationally. And I was on that wild ride where... I had exposure to people that lived in different financial situations and the importance of like realizing they valued different things, they spent their money on different things, the importance of culture on our relationship with money. I think I realized very early there was no single way to do it. Life. Mm. How you spend, and this was all before chat GPT and social media, <laughs> you know, where now there's like a TikToker telling you about everything. So it was a really interesting experience to see it firsthand just from all of those moves.
3: I imagine that would be somewhat freeing too, because you don't feel so bogged down. You don't feel like there's just one path that you have to take. Your parents, yeah, being residences of the world, uh, yeah. definitely open it up and explode your perspective in a way
2: definitely i do think the exposure to that much variety at a fairly young age just gives you a perception a different perception of what's possible and it makes you question your values and whether you're doing the right thing which definitely plays into a lot of you know where i am today and the type of work we're doing but you know i think the third thing i would say about just this influence right of of childhood on money and it's so important on how we all live and connect with each other My parents, especially my mom, had a huge influence on my career, you know, and she really wanted to raise both of us, her daughters, to take care of themselves. And so hard work, grit, mastery, those were major concepts in our household. And so I always had a job. I think, you know, the minute I could sort of do something on my own, I worked in a flower shop. I was a hostess in a restaurant. I remember working in a Montessori school and I wasn't really a huge kid fan when I was younger. (laughs) I was a tennis teacher, a research assistant. And so we had conversations about money. What was I gonna do with that money that I earned? And I loved the independence of being able to buy my own things, my Debbie Gibson hats or whatever I wanted (laughs) to do. And she really taught me that money was a tool. Mm -hmm. Like it was kind of something pretty early on. And that hard work and mastery would be required for me to ultimately have access to that tool that made me, you know, that enabled me to do the things I wanted to do. So that was those three kind of story arcs are probably the most influential in in how I live my life and and some of the journey that I've been on even today at FACET.
3: That's amazing. I'm curious, your son, you said, is four years old. Yeah. Have you started to talk to him about money? And what are those conversations like?
2: A hundred percent, I have. Sometimes, you know, we talk about if he wants to buy something, you know, we'll sometimes game, gamify it, whether it's, uh, you know, him accomplishing, reading a certain number of books or helping with some household chores, then he can kind of save up and go and buy a little toy. And, you know, we talk about the value of things, that this isn't just, you know, all happening and, and you know, there's, there's actually, we have jobs and careers and we earn the money, And that money helps us choose what we put it towards. And so we do have those conversations inherently. It'll be interesting what effect that'll have as he grows older and older, but we definitely talk about money and we talk about the value of things and how much something costs relative to something else and what it takes to earn that amount. That's my favorite. Wow. If you are gonna buy this toy and you're making this many dollars an hour, you're gonna have to work for this many hours. And obviously he's such a young guy, but we still have fun with it. I love that. All right, so let's talk more about Facet.
3: How did you yeah. get involved with Facet and you know, what what inspired you to want to be an advisor and come on as the COO? Yeah, so I got involved with Facet really through the people. So two of
2: the founders, Andrew Jones and Patrick McKenna, I've known through our careers for 12 or 13 years. And so when they initially put Facet together, they called and they said, "Hey, are you, you know, one interested in investing?" And I had done a lot of work on working with subscription-based consumer companies and they said would you be interested in joining our advisory board and when i heard about the mission of the company i was extremely you know hooked i just thought wow like the world really needs this and the timing of some things happening in my professional career i was selling equity in a business it became top of mind and i it really understanding what they were trying to do, I really felt like I could be helpful. So I did invest, I joined the board, and then that was in 2016. And over the course of the last several years, up until I joined full-time in 2021 or early 2021, I was advising them and giving them suggestions. And they were trying to figure out product market fit and how to structure some of the business. And we're seeing some incredible success that really spoke to the need of this service for Americans. And so at a certain point in the advisory work I was doing, um, Andrews called and said, can you get a little bit more involved as we're getting bigger and we're realizing that we're really resonating, but we need to build a consumer brand. Can you come in and help us to scale that? So that happened in 2021 and I came on full-time officially in August, unofficially in, in the early part of the year. And that started, you know, a pretty big transformation around how do you prepare this business for scale, mostly so that we can really ensure that our mission gets to as many Americans as possible because the work we're doing is really that life-changing.
3: When I sat down and I thought about when I entered financial planning, it shocked me because it was like 13 years ago. And I was like, well, how did, where did the time go? And so when I first entered the space... I remember being really thrilled and excited, like, first of all, whoa, I got a job at a financial planning firm. That's interesting to me. Never thought they would uh, trust me in this kind of a position, frankly. Secondly, I, as soon as I started to learn about it, I started to see a lot of the flaws in the model. And I want to talk a little bit about the flaws because I think as FACET is doing a really good job of filling a gap in the market and leveraging technology that, frankly, maybe 13 years ago wasn't available. I think there's an op- like opportunity for scalability here that, again, wasn't available. And so I'm, I'm just really excited to learn more about it. So let's take one step back real quick before we talk sure. about the flaws of financial planning. And can yeah. you just paint me a picture of who FACET is for?
2: Sure. So FACET is for, I think the long-term vision of FACET is that it's for everyone. Right now, like most startups, right, we're focused on a particular segment of the market so that we can open up our service to more and more Americans. At this point in time, we've focused on Americans that have about, that make somewhere between, let's say, you know, an income between 100 and 400, 500,000, like that sort of mass affluent American. And those are people that typically have a lot of questions about they're making a lot of trade-offs and they're trying to understand, you know, should I be investing this money? If I want to send my child to a special school, do I have the funds to do that? Do I need to work longer? So there's a lot of trade-offs in that income range. And that's like, that's a, it's, there isn't a perfect science to it, but typically that's the income range that we really feel that today clients get the best value. And our intention over time is to unlock and go downstream to more and more, you know, income ranges where a lot of the industry focuses on going up market, or they start way more upmarket.
3: Totally. I remember learning how money came into the business at a financial planning and wealth management firm. And my boss says, everybody who comes through the doors, they 400,000 a year, actually, for the clientele that we were working with was on the low end. And everybody had to have a million dollars of investable assets, right? That means, they. for the listeners who are unfamiliar, that means you have a million dollars that you have invested, basically. And the way that we would get make money at this particular firm is we would take a 1% fee on all of their assets. Which, can we just talk about how weird it is to charge that way? That's such a bizarre way to charge. (laughs) Yeah. Because there's, like, mental math going on. Yeah, it's
2: really interesting. You know, the industry has had this business model and incentive structure that's been so misaligned with consumers for such a long time, really since the late 60s when it came together. And how much you invest is the anchoring point. And what that does is there are two problems that come out of that. I mean, there are multiple, but the biggest two are number one, it focuses on people that have over a million dollars that already have wealth. So, you know, that's that traditional 200 page plan and a steak dinner with a guy named Chad or Brad <laughs> or Kip or, and a lot of people get ignored, right? So it's like, it's this almost, re, it's almost this like backward looking type of planning where it's oriented around just investing your money right? and you already have to have the wealth. And then number two is it limits financial planning to focus on investing, usually at one point in time when that money is invested. And so this is also why I think most people don't really know what financial planning is or what it should include or what it should be. They think it's investing. And so people end up settling for these lower standards. They think I'm not rich enough for financial planning. They don't even know what advice looks like. And you know, according to our work, three quarters of US households don't get the help they need. And what they need is really proactive help. Yeah, the industry is, is strange in the way that it's sort of
3: survived
2: this you know assets under management or investing your money focus
3: as soon as i saw betterment come out though in 2010 i remember thinking oh this is going to democratize investing for people these these model portfolios that we're crafting for our clients we anybody can have them now and i was very excited about that
5: 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
2: Hey, Jordan. I've been feeling stressed lately about my finances. I
0: feel like I never have enough money and it's starting to impact my mental health.
1: I totally get that, Chris. Financial stress significantly impacts mental health. Have you considered improving your financial literacy? It can make a difference.
2: That's an interesting idea. But how does financial literacy help me with my mental health?
1: Financial literacy is the knowledge and understanding of various financial matters like budgeting, savings, investing, and managing debt. Knowledge in these areas can help you make informed decisions, which can reduce stress and improve your mental well being.
2: So, what can I do to become more financially literate? Start by
1: learning the basics of personal finance, like creating a budget and setting financial goals. You can read books, watch videos, or take online courses. As you become more knowledgeable, you'll gain confidence in managing your money, which can help reduce financial stress.
2: That sounds great, Jordan. I'll definitely look into improving my financial literacy. Now I know.
1: And knowing is half the battle. Weird Finance
3: Weird Finance So tell me more about Facet's holistic approach and what are some of the ways outside of investing? I know you mentioned education, but what does it look like to be a member of Facet? Is, does every month have a theme or walk us through what it's like to be a client?
2: Yeah, sure. So before I talk through the client experience, I think I'd love to just first like set a broad based understanding of what this is about. So, you know, we are, because of what we just discussed, turning the model on its head. We offer a flat fee membership model, so a subscription, um, that addresses way more households earlier in their lives. So we're not just democratizing a service, but we're also redefining it. And that membership model or subscription is very important because what that means is you don't have to have a certain amount of money to invest to work with us. So if you have you know, a good income and you need help with how to actually optimize that or how to run your finances in your life you know, if you have a little bit to invest, let's say $10,000, $15,000, or, you know, it's a part of your financial plan, but it's not the anchor. It's not like a requirement, which is a big deal. So some of the tenets of what's different is, you know, a traditional financial advisor might give you a one-off plan that's much more retirement or investment focused, Our membership and our experience is all about dynamic planning that covers any financial decision or every financial decision. So what that means is your life is constantly changing, your decisions are constantly changing, And so we're there for you as your go-to partner through those so if there's if you're worried about inflation we can you know help you with how to manage through that if you're about to have a baby we're going to help guide you through what are the decisions you need to make and the things you need to consider if you're about to get married it's it's not just those big life milestones it's also just things that happen you know i i got a raise what do i do with this extra money i just lost my job what do i do i want to start a business Consumers, our members have hundreds of questions about their finances that we help with. The second piece is that some financial advisors out there have product sales, they have commissions that they'll charge, and they have misaligned incentives. That's so dangerous. I think if you listen to consumers about this industry, they'll tell you, I was sold a product that wasn't right for me, and it was done because of those commissions. Well, we don't have product sales commissions or any conflicts. We have about 77 CFPs full-time on staff, and they don't sell products. We have a different team that works on onboarding our members. That's a huge difference from the industry. The third is this flat fee that's very much tied to your needs, not your investments. Um, We always provide a CFP. That is the highest certification possible. It's a certified financial planner, and we are always a fiduciary. Also a big difference if you go to certain other companies, you're not always getting that CFP professional advice. And the last piece is where it's affordable. It's very affordable and it's accessible to really all. And, you know, this is something we're going to keep expanding as the business grows. And it's for every facet of life. And so that's sort of the the table setting. So what does that mean in the client experience? Well, for one, it means that your CFP and our technology and our content work together to create a journey. And that journey isn't like a one time thing once a year or a couple of times a year. You know, there's an ongoing rhythm and conversation that we're having with you through the various points of time of the year. And we're exploring things like how you save your money, your investments, of course, which are included in our fee. That's a big deal. We're also looking at your how do we optimize your overall finances and well being? It could be everything from your taxes like, are you claiming the right withholdings? you know there's a lot of that type of help that we provide people do you have the right benefit package for your family when you're choosing those at work so optimization is is a big deal and then of course there's also protecting so topics around estate planning insurance these are the types of things that we hit so it's very much thinking about all the ways that money impacts your life and providing guidance and advice around those things throughout the course of the year and it's always changing so as there is this give and take and our technology plays a big role in that Um, along with the CFPs that are assigned, you know, that work with you.
3: Very cool. I'm curious, were you working with a financial planner when you were selling your company?
2: I, I, when I left the last um, company I was at, it was after that, that I started to work with a planner. I had, I was an executive at Verizon. They assigned a planner to me. And so I've had some interactions with other planners over time and it is very different.
3: (laughs) What was your experience like?
2: My experience, you know, if I contrast the traditional kind of advisors that I've worked with, they were much more focused on investing my money. That was really the core of the discussion. And there was some light discussion around how that linked to some of the things I wanted to accomplish, but it was very retirement heavy and very focused on the ROI of that portfolio. At Facet, it's the, the models flipped. We start, in fact, one of our first conversations that our, you know, our members have it's a discussion about your values. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes I think the first conversation feels like it's about a bunch of other things and it's not, you know, it's about values. It's about what you want out of life, the goals that you have and the investments support those goals. And so when I've worked with other people, I just was really surprised at how limited the conversation was around my finances relative to what FACET does. And I think the second thing is, you know, we, I joke sometimes that our 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 CFPs are like therapists with calculators, Um, and there's so much emotion in this topic, right? Money is like just a very emotionally charged topic, and a lot of financial planners won't necessarily go there. So, understanding a person and then designing personalized advice for their life circumstances is is the focus, you know, is really paramount. I just haven't had that experience where I've been elsewhere.
3: So yeah, I've worked with. A lot of financial planners, I've observed them, you know, when I was in financial planning and it is baffling that there's not some like emotional intelligence course or psychology course that's required people to take because it's just such a triggering topic. And the more I've dug into it, the more I realize even thinking about, you know, people who have issues with authority or they felt shitty at math you know, when they have to have a conversation with their accountant, there's already so many hurdles that they need to jump over. And so I think just acknowledging that that's a thing is such a different approach than what a lot of people are taking in the financial planning space. So I, I just want to say thanks for acknowledging that. And um, that brings me on to one of the things I've heard you say that I, I found really interesting, and I want to kind of dig into it. You talk about financial decisions and spending money in, in proximity to identity. You said your financial situations, constraints come out of like your ability to spend money. And I just wanted to ask you to kind of double click on that and, and explain what you mean. Yeah. So,
2: you know, I think the biggest thing is that the definition of success has really shifted. You know, in the past, I would say 10, 20, 30 years ago, wealth was very correlated with success. And there was this really fascinating Forbes article a few years ago that talked about how that really isn't the case anymore. You know success is really driven by a lot of other variables, and wealth isn't necessarily the case, you know, isn't necessarily the thing. And so you can feel like people that are not millionaires, billionaires don't feel like failures, and nor should they, right? I think the the um parameters around success have really shifted. And so if you kind of continue on that path and you think a little bit about, Um, how things have evolved, you know, in the past, your finances really constrained and defined your identity. And what's shifted in the last several years, if you kind of go back to that in the 80s, you know, the neighborhood you grew up in, or the place where you were from dictated what you wore and what you drove and where you worked. And in the last decade, all of that has changed. You know, now financial choices are a way to explore and express your identity. And I think people understand that. So when you look at, you know, SRI, socially responsible investing, and, you know, just people voting with their dollars, their values coming through in the companies that they work with, the products that they buy, the places where they invest their money there's so much more focus on this. And we believe that all decisions are financial decisions and a way to ultimately express your values. That's a huge shift. And so, you know, just those traditions have really been evolving. And I think for us, a big part of how we help our members is to help them understand what's important to them. What are their values and how can they make financial choices and live the lives that are more aligned to their values?
3: That's very beautiful.
2: It is pretty cool, isn't it? Yes. It's like so deep for financial planning. I mean, I always
3: laugh. I'm here for that. I'm here for that. It, it, it's, you know, I think we might take it for granted though, Shruti, because we're very comfortable, right? We, you have a business degree, you went to business school, I studied finance and economics. We probably both wake up in the morning and are probably reading the same types of financial news. And it, we're just, you know, we have, we navigate through finances, I think, with a little bit more ease than somebody who's not dealing with it on an everyday basis. But yeah, there's just so much more emotion. I, I don't remember who I was speaking to recently, but I was speaking to somebody recently and I was like, yeah, money is pretty emotional. And she was like point blank, money's the most emotional thing you could possibly decide to talk to somebody about every single day, day in and day out. And that yeah. kind of took me back because I was like, yeah, you know, it, it really is pretty gnarly how how emotional it is. It's rooted in our safety and our security. And, you know, as much as you say that our identities are are more, are more flexible, I still think that there's still so much work to be done. I think older generations are still learning that. I have to applaud Gen Z. I feel like they are very much, like, carving their own path. And I do see them using—but I do see them using— transactions to define who they are. I don't know if you've noticed this, but so many of them are shopping at thrift stores more than I think my peers did when I was their age. And that is just their way of saying no to fashion. You can't have my money. This is how I'm choosing to interact with the fashion industry in the world. And I think it's what a great lesson from them. No, I think that's true. And it's interesting
2: because some of the research we've done have even identified, you know, this growth seeker mentality. Hmm. And it really permeates across every generation. We find um, certainly higher concentrations, the younger um, the younger generations, right? The Gen Zs, the Millennials, but especially in the Jet X, which is a very ignored population of yeah. <laughs> people, by the way. And it's a huge, you know, huge, uh, big population of our members but i think that what we find is that they are all in this mindset of continuing to evolve and educate themselves and understand who they are as people what they value and that there is this commitment to better alignment of like that sort of self-awareness to the choices that they make every day and that is a hard thing to do and having a professional help you you know identify that and connect it to better financial choices is very powerful, and that's you know what obviously gets us so excited. But um, but it is such an emotional space, and the, like shame is a huge emotion in this space too, which is fascinating.
3: Absolutely. Can you tell me like what what is the most common thing you think new users of Facet get as a takeaway from becoming a member?
2: Wow. I mean, number one is stress relief. They just get you know, the number one cause of stress is money. That's well-researched. It's the number two cause of divorce. In some research, you'll see it's actually number one that sustained economic stress. And, you know, we believe that there's no wellness without financial wellness, period. And I think for our members, we really find that they definitely feel the impact of that, right? They feel the impact of there's a weight that's been lifted off of me. Like, I've got somebody in my corner, I have knowledge and clarity and confidence around the choices I'm making. A lot of our, a lot of the consumer marketplace and, you know, our members before they joined would say things like, I'm not sure if I'm doing the right things with my money. And I think that stress relief and that burden is the thing that they don't expect and the thing that they really experience. And I remember talking to a member of ours that joined who you know, thought that this was going to be helpful and said to me, I was shocked at the ways in which this changed my life. It was way more emotionally beneficial than I ever expected. And I think that we love to hear Um, when it comes to wellness. Like that's, you know, that's what you want to hear.
3: I love that. All right, Trudy, I want to turn around, turn the tables on you, and I want to ask you some rapid fire questions. So my first question is, is there something that you've purchased Let's say relatively recently that to the naked eye might seem frivolous or ridiculous, but for you, it was truly money well spent. Yes.
2: A seemingly overpriced piece of luggage, of carry on luggage, but it fits more than I ever thought it could fit. And I, you know, I do get around pretty well in terms of travel and it's so easy for me to fly through the airport with it and it was like just a better experience but i felt super guilty when i was you know going to do this and it i feel really good about the purchase now
3: amazing <laughs> do you have a do you have a similar type of purchase that you've made i mean so many but i do go through that initial feeling of like i shouldn't right like th- to ju- to what to improve my <laughs> to marginally improve my life and then it's one of those things where if there's enough marginal, you know, it like compounds and it becomes a greater return, just like investing.
2: That's so <laughs> yes, my new, my new carry-on luggage, which I, you know, I'm feeling really good about, even though I had a lot of guilt and thought about long before the purchase. <laughs> All
3: right. What's one piece of advice, it could be financial, but it doesn't have to be, that you'd give to your younger self?
2: Oh, well you know, in the spirit of finances, it would be get professional advice as early as possible. Do not DIY. Please don't call your cousin and think that's enough or, you know, watch random TikTok videos and think that that's enough. I think that especially from somebody that doesn't have credentials, I would say get proper, you know, financial advice for your entire life and you will live differently and you will be less stressed and you will feel like you're more in control of your choices. And, you know, the ability to express who you are.
3: I co-sign on that for sure. Awesome. (laughs) Did you have any financial superstitions growing up?
2: Not really. You know, it's funny because being of, you know, Asian ancestry, there's plenty of superstitions that, you know, roam around, but I wasn't really raised with a superstitious, in a superstitious household. I think the close, this is less of a superstition, but I, I used to, in all my traveling, collect money from all over the place. And I have it in a piggy, like a piggy bank here of just like a big storage of lots of different currencies, but nothing otherwise.
3: That's very cool. And it feels very on brand.
2: Yes, it's on brand. (laughs) Are Are you a superstitious person? Do you have a couple of them?
3: I'm not a superstitious person, but my great grandfather on my paternal side, he was Chinese. And I think my grandma then inherited a bunch of what seems to be superstitions from that side. And yeah, she would just always say the weirdest stuff to us. Some of it wasn't finance related, but yeah, I've got like the itchy palm is one that oh, yeah. stuck with me for a long time. One. Yeah. And, you know, everybody, no matter where you're from, no matter what your background is, we I hear about the the purse on the floor, the wallet on Four. the floor.
2: I know that one too. Don't put your purse on the floor. <laughs> yes.
3: Do you have any financial fumbles that you can look back on and laugh at?
2: Oh my goodness. I have so many And I think this is really like, literally, I work for, you know, I work for Facet. And when I got here and had really been thoughtful about my finances, raising a family that talked about money, and there's a laundry list of things. Like when I sat down with our co-founder, Brent Weiss, who is now my de facto financial planner, he literally was like, oh, okay, you know, in a very warm way, like, you should have exercised those stock options. You didn't, you're going to pay a lot of taxes. Oh, your benefits aren't fully optimized Um, I think I bought a really dumb insurance product early on. I was sold a product and it was bad advice and a total waste of money. I mean, I could keep going. And I think like, you know, just tons of financial fumbles. And this is why my number one piece of advice is get expert help, because I could have avoided all of those if I had them early enough. And again, I thought you had to have wealth for services like this and, and you don't. And so- Unfortunately, I don't know that I laugh at all of them quite yet. I feel like <laughs> suffering from some of them,
3: but Oh, I'm sorry to uh, to bring up a painful memory. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all good. I mean, at least I know, you know, right. at least
2: now I can take
3: action. So And I, you know, part of the reason why I want to ask people this is to highlight that you could have a business degree. You yeah. could have gone to business school. You could work at a financial planning firm and you still make mistakes and it's just a part of life. We all pay tuition and we all learn and we have to we and I think it's important to share it with each other because then that way we can save somebody else from, you know, just saying yes to some weird insurance uh, product that's not right. for them.
2: Yeah. And just the jargon. I mean, I have I have such a hard time knowing what all the acronyms and the words mean. And since I'm not homegrown financial planning my whole career, like coming into this industry, it's like it's really intimidating. So getting professional help can help. Navigate a lot of the noise too.
3: Amazing. Shruti, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you for being so generous with your time and your advice. Uh, Where can the people learn more about you and where can they sign up for Facet? Well, they can
2: follow us on any of uh, the social platforms. And if you search for Facet, you'll find them. We have different handles on all. Um, But facet.com is a great place to go for more information. And we have a very robust library of articles as well if you're early in your journey and you're just trying to learn about financial planning, that can also make you smarter on different topics that can be helpful. We think financial literacy is really important.
3: Amazing. Thank you so much, Trudy. Thank
2: you so much for having me. It was wonderful to connect.
5: Twenty twenty five QX eighty coming this summer.
3: We finance. We finance. We finance. Welcome to Loose Change. On this edition, Chris Lafter and I are at the Silver Lake Reservoir in Los Angeles, trading loose change for perspective. Today, Chris asked folks to play a short word association game in an attempt to explore some of today's most pressing financial issues. So here it goes.
1: Student loans.
2: I have a lot. (laughs) Inflation. Confusing.
1: The wage gap.
2: Too large. Bitcoin. I have no idea, I still don't.
1: (laughs) Tax returns. I want bigger ones. (laughs) Student loans. Whack. Inflation. Scary. The wage gap. Confusing. Bitcoin. Also confusing. Tax returns. Also confusing. Student loans. Debt. Inflation. Money. The wage gap. Poverty. Bitcoin. Crypto. Tax returns.
0: Georgia. Just because I just got mine from Georgia.
1: (laughs) Student loans. Easy. Inflation. Hard. The wage gap. Bigger. Bitcoin. Woof. Tax returns. Yummy. Student loans.
3: Ugh. That's (laughs) perfect.
2: (laughs) Anger.
1: Uh, Inflation. Creeping. The wage gap. Real. Bitcoin.
0: Monopoly money.
1: Tax returns.
0: I don't get one. (laughs) Not everyone
3: we asked participate did, but of those that were willing, the thing that surprised me the most was how open these folks were, which feels like a good direction. Being open and talking with complete strangers about the joys of spending or the awkwardness of inequality won't solve all of our problems, but it's a damn good start. Thank you again for listening to Weird Finance. If you like the show, please express that like by giving us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us out a lot. And if you'd like to receive even more content from me, you can sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Nerd Letter. Each week, I'll send you a short email of things I've read and recommend. Sign up for it at thehellyardgroup.com. Yeah Here we are at the end of another episode of Weird Finance, which is an iHeartMedia production and just would not be possible without the help of many wonderful, caring, hardworking, and talented folks like my producer, Ramsey Yunt. Ramsey produced, edited, he did some sound design, and he even sang a little bit on this episode. Thank you to Chris Laughter for walking up to random strangers to ask them about money for the Loose Change segment. Thank you to my friends, Bill Bittner and Ariel Lazarus for lending your voices for this week's PSA. Our theme song was written and performed by me and my wonderful friends, Jenna Parker and Andrew Parker. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, or you want to be part of the show, Give us a call at 833-ASK-PACO. That's eight three three two seven five seven two two six. 275 Or you can send us an email at weirdfinancepod at gmail.com. All right, that's it. We'll catch you here next week. And in the meantime, take care.
5: Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury.